Uh, The title, if you're taking notes, is Well When You Put It That Way. Well, when you put it that way. I was thinking that kind of sounds like a Jeopardy title, like a category in Jeopardy or something. Well, when you put it that way. And uh, yes, Easter was two weeks ago already. Last week, I was grateful. Cody, thank you so much for jumping in and preaching a great sermon and for giving me the week off. I was especially grateful after listening to the sermon, not just for the week off, but uh, I was encouraged by your sermon and especially uh, by your vulnerability and the way you opened up. I really appreciated that. And, and I said on the podcast, uh, Cody preached my favorite story in the Gospels. Um, outside of the parables and things like that. It is my favorite story in the Gospels. And if you want to know why, then you'll have to go back and listen to the podcast. Um, But when I knew Cody was going to preach that text, I I seriously felt like, you know when you're eating a Cinnabon and like someone steals the center of the Cinnabon from you and it's like the best part of the Cinnabon? That's how I felt when Cody took that great story and preached the story that is commonly known as Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And, and I have many reasons why I love that story, but I'll just give you two, and I'm not trying to re-preach Cody's sermon. This is an intro into the Romans text. Um, but one of the reasons that I love that story is because of what Jesus does for the disciples on that road. And, and then a second reason is because how it made them feel in the end is why I love that story. You remember the story. I'll just give a brief recap. These two disciples, they're walking, they're talking to each other uh, days after what had taken place with Jesus being crucified and buried, and they were in despair. They were hopeless and because they thought this was their long-awaited Messiah, but now he's dead. And, and just who would come along but Jesus, the risen Jesus, but they did not recognize them or recognize him as the story goes, because they were spiritually blind due to their unbelief. And so Jesus has this conversation with them, and after hearing their reasons for discouragement, we read that Jesus took the opportunity to have a Bible study with them on the road. And I just think, what would that have been like to hear Jesus, the risen Savior, discussing the Scriptures, His voice, talking about His Word? That would have been amazing. And he walks them through the story line of Scripture, from Moses to the historical books to the prophets, or in Jewish terms, what they would have referred to as the law, the prophets, and the writings. And as he does this, he explains to them, hey, listen, all the things that happened to Jesus, they were planned and purposed by God from the very beginning, that suffering must come first before he enters into his glory. That's, that's one of the reasons why I love that story, because I would have loved to have been there to, to hear Jesus explain the scriptures in the way that they did. There's been a few moments in my own Christian life where, I don't know, maybe after reading a commentary or listening to a sermon, I, I've had to stop and say to myself, I've never heard it put that way before. Maybe a familiar story or a familiar passage of Scripture, but then when someone else explains it to me, I'm like, I think to myself, I've never heard it like that. And when that happens, when someone takes the gospel story and then threads it through the pieces of the Bible like a quilt, all you can do is stand back and marvel at the beauty and wonder of God and what He has done. And, and that's what happened to these men and one of the reasons why I like that story. The other reason why I love that story is their response 
Evidently, the conversation is so good, they want to hear more, and they invite Jesus back to their house, and when He broke bread with them, suddenly their eyes were opened, and they recognized who it was that was talking to them, and they said to one another, I love this, did our hearts not burn within us when He explained the Scriptures to us? Now, think about that statement. Here's a couple faithful Jewish disciples eager for the kingdom of God to come in power. They were taught the Scriptures from an early age, but never had they heard it put to them like that before. And as a result of that living and active Word of God coming to them in power and truth, they experienced what they could only describe as a passionate spiritual heartburn within themselves that changed them forever. And, and friends, I, I love that story because that's my hope and prayer for us every single week as we study the Scriptures together is that we would not just be studying these words, but that we would hear the voice of the risen Christ speaking to us from His Word, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, He'll help us to see the wonder, the glory, the truthfulness of God that is discovered in His Word, to have our eyes opened like their eyes were opened, to have our, to have our hearts warmed by that same grace that they had, and to have our lives transformed by Jesus. That's my hope every week and every life group session, and every time I study the Bible personally, and my hope for you every time you study the Bible personally or one-on-one with someone else, that the Scriptures would come alive and you would see the truth and the truth would set you free. And again, I bring this story up as somewhat of a recap from where we were last week, but because it's a great segue into what we're going to see and study this week. You see, I have often wondered, as I just mentioned a moment ago, What did Jesus say to those disciples on the road to Emmaus that caused them to see something in the Scriptures that they hadn't seen before? What stories did He reference? Which ones did He leave out? Because you can't say it all in a short little conversation. And, And we know what His theme was. His theme was to show them how the Christ must suffer these things before entering into His glory. So that was His thesis, and then he looked at the Scriptures to prove his point. Now, we could never know again exactly what it was that he said this side of heaven, but we do know that he looked at the whole of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets and the writings. And what is fascinating is that in the text we are about to study this week, the Apostle Paul does the exact same thing for his readers in Rome that Jesus did for those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He walks his readers through the Scriptures to prove a very important point about the ministry of Jesus to us. And if I could summarize the big idea of the passage we're going to read here in a moment, it would be this, that the Scriptures teach that when Jesus became a servant, He proved God's faithfulness and mercy in order that together we might have hope and joy. I'll say that again. The Scriptures teach that when Jesus became a servant, He proved God's faithfulness and mercy in order that together we might have hope and joy. So we'll have that in our minds. Why don't we pray together and then we'll continue on. God, we come before You. And as we come before You in prayer, 
We do so knowing that we need you to open our eyes to see and understand your word. That so often our, our sin, our own preconceived notions or agendas or worldviews that we bring to the scriptures colors wrongly oftentimes the truth of the matter from your word. And so, God, we want to just empty ourselves of our own agendas and be filled with the truth of your word and and revealed to us by your Holy Spirit. And we need that illumination to see the inspiration that is in your word. And so, God, I pray you would open our hearts, open our eyes to see these wonderful things in order that we might be transformed, in order that we might be a more unified body of believers. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I read, just a brief reminder of the context. The last time we were in Romans, we were talking about Christian liberty and Paul's discussion about how in the church in Rome, and really in any church, there are usually two groups of people. On the one hand, there were those who had a weak conscience due to a weak or an immature faith that did not allow them to practice or observe certain things for fear of sinning or doing something foolish. On the other hand, there were those who had a stronger or maybe a more mature conscience that enabled them to express their freedom in Christ without fear of sinning or doing something unwise. In fact, they believed that they could do these things, whatever that is, eat food, celebrate holidays, whatever you want to put in that category. They believed they could do those things and bring glory to God, even in those things that this other group found unwise. And what Paul is doing is he's talking to these two groups of people, obviously coming at the discussion from very different places. And essentially, he commands them to this group, don't judge these people over here for what they can or cannot do. And and to the other group, don't be so pious, don't be so arrogant in your Christian liberty that you exclude these people who are still growing in their faith and understanding these things. But instead, be welcoming to everyone who possesses faith in the gospel into membership in the church, knowing that God has welcomed you in all of your flaws, in all of your issues, in all of the things that you bring to the table. He welcomed you, and in the same way that he welcomed you, welcome them into fellowship. He says in verse 7 of Romans 15, as sort of a concluding remark, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In other words, don't let your differences divide you, but stay united and welcoming of everyone who believes in Jesus as an overflowing response of his acceptance of you and of them, in order that God may be glorified among you. In other words, I was thinking about this. This would be a good way to phrase it. God is most glorified when his people who profess his name remain unified in their mutual faith and do not divide over petty issues or personal preferences. That's the the short summary of what Paul had discussed in the prior chapter and what took me three sermons to get through. But this week, we'll look at what Paul is returning to this theme of Christian unity. Only this time, it isn't unity between someone who has a strong conscience or a weak conscience. But now he's talking about this unity between two other groups of people. 
Jews and Gentiles. In case you don't know what a Gentile is, a Gentile is everybody else other than a Jew. The, the word for Gentile means the nations. So everyone else other than the Jews. So we want unity is what Paul is looking for between Jews and Gentiles, all the other nations who have come to believe in Jesus. And that's kind of one of the central themes of Romans, is Paul not only wants to explain the gospel to them in clarity, but unite these two very different groups of people. And what Paul is going to do with his readers here in Rome and with us in order to prove his point is to take us, metaphorically speaking, on this Emmaus journey. And what we'll see is Paul's biblical understanding of why Jesus came and what that means for everyone who believes in Jesus, Jew or Gentile. And because again, you see, while on that road to Emmaus, Jesus wanted to prove from the scriptures why it was necessary for Jesus to come and suffer and die before entering into his glory. And like I said a moment ago, Paul wants to show from the scriptures that they teach that when Jesus became a servant, he proved God's faithfulness to his people and mercy to those who weren't his people in order that we might have hope and joy together. So let's read starting in verse 8 of Romans 15. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, meaning the Jew, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. We are all, as we all know, hardwired in our fallen nature, uh, our fallen human nature, to worship and serve that unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. I. We naturally don't want to serve other people. We want to be served by others. And when everyone thinks that way, conflict happens. Every fight, every argument, every disagreement, every division is rooted in this twisted, ingrown love for our own wants and desires above those around us. Furthermore, not only do we get upset when things don't go our way, because again, this is rooted in that uh, fallen human desire to get what we want, but we get jealous when we see things going someone else's way and not ours. This is the problem, one of the problems that we all must battle against as Christians on a daily basis. It is what Jesus had in mind when he called his disciples to take up their cross daily and follow after him. To do this, to 
put myself, metaphorically speaking, on the cross daily, dying to myself, to do this means to put my selfish schemes, my carnal cravings, my worldly wants to death on that metaphorical cross in order that I might walk in newness of life in Christ. And as we put off the old ways and put on the new life that we have through faith in Jesus, we are to actively consider the needs and feelings of others above ourselves. That is the life that Jesus calls us to in our relationships, all of our relationships within the church, in our homes, and in the community. And, and what Paul is saying here is that humility, humility is the key ingredient to Christian unity, which is the aim, again, of what Paul desires for these readers, Jew and Gentile. He wants them to come together in unity, and he's saying, if you're going to have that happen, it's going to happen only through this key ingredient which is humility. He wants his fellow countrymen, his fellow Jew, to serve in humility his Gentile, or their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ in order to cultivate a spirit of unity within the church of Rome. And he wants his Gentile brothers and sisters to serve their Jewish brothers and sisters knowing that God brought them to faith through the Jewish people. We know this is the aim from the context of what Paul is talking about in Romans. This is actually easy to see what Paul is doing here. He's trying to unite these two groups of people. The fun part is understanding his argument and his aim for bringing us to such a position, which, of course, Paul shows is first and foremost found in the ministry of Jesus. In other words, in order to show how and why these two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, from completely different backgrounds and worldviews, these two groups, how they are to live in harmony and unity together, he points them not to their differences, but to what they have in common, which is their mutual faith in Jesus and what he did for them. And notice what he says exactly about Jesus. First, he's encouraging them to serve others. Why? because that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came as a servant. He came not as some high-ranking official or leader in government, but as a poor slave from Nazareth in order to bring them to faith, which is really a, a fascinating thing to think about. I think for us, if you've been walking with Jesus for <coughs> a long enough time, you sort of take this reality for granted that that Jesus, who was high and lifted up, came down to serve people like you and me. And Paul reminds us of this, actually. He writes it really well in Philippians 2 under a similar context. And, and what he writes there is so good. We're just going to read the whole thing. Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's saying, be unified. And then he says in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, this mind of humility, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, or a thing that he needed to hold on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here is his point. If you think you're too good to serve someone else, if you think you're too important or you're too busy to serve others, what Paul is saying is Jesus was actually that. He was truly significant. He was and is truly magnificent, right? He is all of these things, and yet he came down and served us. He didn't have to serve us. He, he could have stayed in heaven and avoided all the misery and the pain and the betrayal and the death and just stayed in the comforts and glory of heaven and been worshipped in the beauty of holiness for all of eternity. He didn't need to do any of this for us, but he did. Why? Because he loved us. He who was high made himself low in order that we might be united with him. He served you all the way to death in order that you might have a relationship with him. This is good news. This is the good news of the gospel. And furthermore, and this is Paul's focus, he did all that, not just to purchase our salvation, but to give us an example of how we are to pursue and cultivate unity within our own relationships. It's not through getting people to submit to my will or people to submit to your will, but you humbly serving and loving people in the way that Jesus humbly served and loved you. It's the only way. It's the Christian way to unity in the body of Christ, humble service. And so that's the first thing Paul wants from his readers to know is that Christ came and he came as a servant, which forms the basis and motivation of their service, of their fellow Christian, in order that they might experience unity in their churches, even in their immense differences. I mean, Jew and Gentile, these two groups of people don't get any more different. But it gets even deeper than that. You see, Paul doesn't stop at just thinking about Christ as this supreme example of serving others. Instead, Paul wants to show that this unity between Jews and Gentiles, this was not some later development This was not some plan where God is reacting later on, going, wait a second, I forgot about how to unite these people together, let's devise some plan. No, what he's saying is this was always a part of the plan, was to see Jew and Gentile, these two groups of people, serving and knowing God. It was always a part of his redemptive purposes. You see, the God of the Bible is not pro-Jew and against everyone else. No, the actual truth is that God is for you for you, 
everybody. Remember our theme for this series in Romans comes from chapter 8, where Paul writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's not just writing to the Jew there, and he's not just writing to the Gentile. He's saying, God is for you. If you are in Christ, He is for you. And Jesus coming in the way He did proves that God is true. He is true to His Word, true to His people and to Himself, which means you can trust Him in everything that He says and does. And and Paul points out that Jesus came as a servant to prove God's truth, that He does not lie, and He does this for two reasons. Look again at the text right there, the first couple of verses. In other other words, if you want to know why Jesus came, at least according to Paul, in the way that he did as a servant, he's going to give us two big reasons. First, to prove his faithfulness to the Jews, and second, to show his mercy to the Gentiles in order that they also, along with the Jews, might glorify God. So he came first to show his faithfulness to the Jews that he is not a liar, he fulfills his promises, and two, that he shows mercy to the Gentiles, those outside of his covenant promises. Friends, what might seem, again, obvious to us, if you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, you're thinking, of course, this is what God has done. He's, He's come to show his faithfulness, he's come to show his mercy, we understand this. But this point would have been revolutionary in Paul's day. You see, Paul is showing from the scriptures that the church of Jesus isn't just a Jewish faith, and it isn't some new faith that the Gentiles hold on to, because if you remember, we've talked about this before, that in Rome at that time, the Jews had been expelled from Rome. They were Jew and Gentile churches, largely influenced by Jewish believers, but then they all got kicked out of Rome. And now, 15 years later, they're coming back, and these churches are dominated by Gentiles. They're led by Gentile leaders. And and so, is this a Gentile faith? Is this a Jewish faith? And so, that's the historical context that Paul is writing into. So, this is not some new faith, and it's not just some Jewish faith. It's a global truth, a truth that first came to the Jews, but also includes the rest of the world. Remember what Paul said in chapter 1. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, because they had the promises of God first, and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So you see what Paul is proving here to his fellow Jewish believer, the one who is hoping to con- he is hoping to convince that they are to serve their Gentile brother or sister in Christ, is that this was always a part of God's plan for the Jewish people to serve and be a blessing to the rest of the nations, the rest of the world, in order that those Gentiles might see the goodness and the grace of God and come to believe, that He might graft them in, that He might adopt them into His family. Or like He says there, He uses the, the text in Isaiah, that they would be a part of the vine or the root of Jesse, that they would come in and be a part of this family. But notice that before he presses that point in, what he first needs them to accept 
is that God was faithful to them, to the Jews specifically, and the promises he made to their forefathers all along. You see, from the time of Abraham, God promised that he would bless the future generations of Abraham. He promised that he would make them into a mighty nation, which he was faithful to do. He grew them into this mighty nation, but he also wanted to show that as a part of those earlier promises, his desire was to see all the nations of the earth be blessed through them. And of course, this he did supremely by sending Jesus, born as a Jew, sent to the house of Israel in order that his faithfulness to his covenant people might be proven true, which is, which is a good application for us too. Yes, we're not Jews, but we now grafted in are a part of his covenant people and his promises to us, he is faithful and true to them and we'll see them all the way to the end. But Paul wants his Jewish audience to see that God not only promised to bless them, this isn't just some homogenous ethnic salvation, but that through them all the world is to be blessed, that he had a plan to save the world through them. Isn't that incredible? If you're a Jewish believer, hearing Paul's words to them, to hear that God made specific promises to you to bless you, but that he wants to use you, flawed you in the world to save other flawed people, friends, that's grace upon grace upon grace, that God would choose someone like us even and want to use someone like us in the lives of somebody else. It's truly incredible. But the other group in the room, so that's the comment to the Jew. He's faithful to you. But the other group in the room, what Paul wants his Gentile readers to understand is that though they never had any specific promise made to them, God did not forget or abandon them. They, they may have felt like outsiders in this whole redemptive plan and story of God and looking at his covenant people, and maybe they felt like they were outsiders looking in, going, man, I could never be a part of that. But what Paul is saying is there was always an invitation an invitation to enter in and experience God's blessing in a relationship with him through faith. And, and like Jesus did on the road to Emmaus, Paul proves this claim that God was faithful to his people and that he is merciful to the Gentiles. He proves this claim by taking his readers on a walk through the scriptures. And, and Paul doesn't make this explicit claim but subliminally, it's implied that the whole of scriptures teaches this truth because he quotes from those major blocks of scripture, from the law, from the prophets, and from the writings. We see there in verse 9, his first quotation from the Old Testament. In Psalm 18, it's, it's a messianic psalm of David, and, and to his Jewish readers, Paul was certainly implying that Jesus is saying these words, that he will praise his Father among the Gentiles and sing to his name. In other words, his praise of God's glory is also a proclamation of God's grace to the world. And so this is the first quotation. He's saying, look at even in the Psalms, we see already this proclamation to the Gentiles to come and believe. The second quotation is in verse 10, and it comes from Deuteronomy, from the pen of of Moses, from the law. 
And, and Moses isn't in this verse writing to the Jews, ironically, but to the Gentiles. And Moses is saying to the Gentile world, come, join in and rejoice with His people. You can enter in and have fellowship with God's people as well. You don't have to be outsiders anymore. And you can start to see the flow of thought in Paul's quotations here, that it's from the law, the prophets, and the writings, but the flow of action. It moves from Jesus praising His Father to then this invitation of Moses to the Gentiles to come and rejoice with them. And then verse 11, it's a quote from Psalm 117, a command to the nations to come and praise the Lord, their Lord. He's not just the God of the Jews, but He is God of everything. And then finally in verse 12, a quote from Isaiah from the prophets that essentially teaches that the Messiah will not only be the root and offspring of Jesse, but He will one day be ruler and hope of all the Gentile nations. Paul's point is clear. God's plan all along was to bless the nation of Israel and then to use them to bring salvation and hope to the Gentiles. This, of course, he did through sending Jesus as a servant to the world. This proves to everyone that God is faithful to his people. He is true in all of his promises, and he is merciful to all who believe. And Paul's immediate application for them in the church of Rome was because of what God has done in all of this, you two different groups of people in all of your differences ought to be united, Jew and Gentile, to see the gospel as the motivating, the stabilizing principle of church unity. And you do this by serving one another just as Jesus served you, which, to which all of this, hopefully those in that church then were reading this and, and hearing this clear biblical argument, hopefully they got to the end and said, well, Paul, when you put it that way, I guess, I guess we probably should pursue church unity and serve one another because of what God has done for us. And what I want you to notice how Paul ends, because he doesn't just drop the mic, right? He doesn't just drop the mic and say, made my point, and then walk off the stage. Instead, he does the most unifying thing in in serving them, and he prays for them in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Have you noticed how prayer has this wonderful ability to bring God's people together in humility. After all, it's kind of hard to say unkind things about your brother and sister when you're on your knees in prayer before God. It's very difficult. In fact, what you instinctively want to do is intercede for them. What you instinctively want to do, at least the child of God wants to instinctively do, is confess your own failings and and pray for this other person to to grow in their faith and to be unified. So, so I think as an application for us, Christian unity is always something that we should be working hard at. And the model that we have in Jesus is the model of humility and service. And we have a unifying truth 
in the Scriptures to bring us together. We all believe in this same gospel message of Jesus, and we have this spiritual practice set before us in prayer that we ought to pray for one another and intercede for one another. And as we pray together and for each other, I believe that we will continue to see and experience the fruit of Christian unity, which is hope and joy and peace through the power of the Holy Spirit. Who doesn't want that? Of course we do. Why don't we pray together now, and then we'll have a time of communion. Father, we're so amazed at your ways that not only do you desire reconciliation between us and you, us sinful, broken, fallen, selfish people, to be united to our Creator. You are holy, you are glorious, and you unite us with yourself through the service of Jesus to us. You want reconciliation between us, and we have that because of what Jesus did. But you, you don't just want this vertical reconciliation, you want that reconciliation to be demonstrated in our horizontal relationships, the way that we relate to one another in the body of Christ, in our homes, in the community. We want to experience that, that reconciliation on a daily basis. And when we see that, the world will take notice and they will praise you. They will see how can a group of people so diverse be so unified, so loving, so together, so service-minded. How is that possible? And the only answer could be because we've been with Jesus. And I pray that that would be true of us in the church, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.